welcome to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast for three dungeon masters who've been doing this for way too long. Talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. Strange Brew, kill what's inside of you. Strange Brew, kill what's inside of you. <laughs> Get a little funky with the homebrew there. Yeah, dude, that's the first uh, That's the first edition of Cream that's appeared on the show so far. Strange I Brew. That was, that was Cream. Yeah, Strange Brew. I thought it was just the theme song from that, you know, that Canadian. From Strange Brew. Hey, you hoser. It had the brothers in it, right? Yeah, the, yeah. It was Rick Moranis and the other guy from SCTV. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember his name, but yeah. Oh, what a great show. Oh, my God. I think we I think we are insulting all of our Canadian listeners by not remembering those gentlemen. But it's uh, the actual the name of the brothers they were. It was hilarious, though. I love that movie. So... And that's a, that's a great segue into what we're talking about today, because we are talking about how do we get into our strange, strange homebrew. Strange that's brew. Sorry. That's all right. That's all right. I think it deserved it. This comes from our listener, Jared. And Jared's asked us uh, several questions before, and, and we really appreciate them. So, Jared, thank you. And anyone listening, if you have questions you'd like to hear us uh, cover, please send them in. You can send them to threewisedms at gmail.com. You can go to our website and enter them in the What's Your Problem field, because we're trying to help you with your problems. Or you can talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're very active in all those places. So, Jared's question today is, how do you decide where what and when to homebrew for narrative reasons. Obviously, there are entire homebrew campaigns out there. Dave's fond of kit bashing, and Tony could probably teach a class on giant cultural norms after his work on Storm King's Thunder. So what's your process? How do you decide, ah, yes, I'll turn him into an undead pile of bugs, which refers to something we've mentioned a few times when I actually turned Tony's wizard into an undead pile of bugs in the game, as opposed to anything else you might do. (laughs) A larval mage, yeah. So how do you decide to do that as opposed to anything else you might do? Better yet, how do you pick the narrative moment? We've heard snippets of this in other episodes, but I would love to hear your thoughts on the subject of homebrew in both a narrative capacity and a mechanical capacity as referenced in my previous questions. So, you know, that's that's a great question. We have hit a lot of the stuff. We've done some stuff on homebrew before, mm-hmm. but Jared really bring, gets to the root of it. And for me, when I have homebrewed, it is usually driven by a narrative reason. Yeah, the, 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 the Larval Mage incident, which we'll get into a little more, I think, was narratively driven, 100% narratively driven. And I hit a point where I was like, this is just what makes sense. This is what happens. And that's what happened. And Tony was great. He rolled with it. We had a great campaign from there. So for you guys, when do you decide to take on the, to, to add that bit of weird narrative homebrew and take what is definitely a risk with the campaign? Well, I mean, I enjoyed the power of being a larva mage up until I met, you know, my arch nemesis, the, the Orchid Man, because that was horrifying. I mean, that was the only thing that could have possibly stopped me. But uh, you're right. It was narratively driven. It wasn't like there's a difference between you're going to do some home brewing with a like, race in the beginning and saying, I'm going to give somebody a, a this or that for a story reason versus you've got somebody who's a time bomb who's pushing a certain point that you know is going to explode at some point. Like you're reading the Necronomicon like Dave is in the, or the Black Book of a Bond Dave is in this other game that we're yeah. in. Because we know that's not going to possibly end badly. Like I mean, I've already, used, I, I've already used Undead Pile of Bugs. I can't go back to that again. It has to be something else. 
Well, no, right. it's a completely different system. Completely different. That's <laughs> that, And also, I want to say that's probably not going to be homebrew. That'll just be some straight book shit. Like, this is what happens to you in Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> that, that book is not as comprehensive as you might think. <laughs> well, that there you have a system that's kind of devised around you're searching for forbidden knowledge. You find it. You push too hard. What happens? In D&D, not so much. With that case, I was chasing undead lore, necromancy, well, I sought the power, and then something terrible happened. And if you have a player who's doing that, that's kind of the, the unspoken deal that's taking place there. What about you, Dave? I want to make a, a distinction. Just because of the way some of, part of the question is phrased, because Jared specifically calls out that there are whole homebrew campaigns like Thorin's. Now, I will put a caveat to that. So when we're talking something like Woodstock Wanderers, I don't consider that a homebrew campaign. I consider that Thorin's campaign that he's put together, but he's using all book material. He's specifically made that clear in, in sense of like he wants to learn how to use the 5e system and play through it. So you're going through the monster manual and volos and published things, you know, like play tested material, as opposed to when I think homebrew meaning more you're literally creating things that don't fully really exist in that world. Like uh, does that make, well, God enough is absolutely, but that's very abstract right now. Right. True. In a way, you True. know what I'm saying? I mean, like, 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 but also like powered up his powered up followers who, who get additional power based yeah. on souls. They yeah. feed to God enough. Yeah. I would actually, I know what you're saying. Cause it is a homebrew. That is a homebrew campaign world. The entire world is homebrew. Yes. The entire story is homebrew. The context that you guys are wandering in is homebrew. The mechanics I've tried to keep strictly by the book because it was our right. first campaign. I wanted to really learn it right. But I have the stuff that is world specific is totally homebrew. And it does yeah. fall into this. Like, I mean, with Gadanathwa, I decided to do that because. You're a Lovecraft junkie? Yeah. I am a Lovecraft junkie. <laughs> yes, because something. Guilty. An elder god has to appear somewhere. I I'm going to get over that. I think now that we're playing Call of Cthulhu, I'm, I'm going to try not to do that next time. Although my, my Celtic campaign, campaign. would be very similar. <laughs> but in addition to that, like, you know, you guys were chasing basically these slaves being taken. You were chasing this paladin who had gone rogue from the one yeah. from the one player's order. And that led me organically to this solution. Why are people being taken? Why are they being kidnapped? Why is this paladin over here? What tempted him away? Why would he do that? Why did he not? I'd figured out first he went native and he joined someone. So why did he do that? These things led me to there is a hyper powerful oh. cult here that has to have some kind of real tangible convincing argument for why so. you should turn your back on the world you knew and come serve us. And that led me to giant spaghetti monster under the ground so God, it's, what came about narratively while the story was playing out as we interacted with the world that was not something that you had planned from the from the get-go in the well, world necessarily yeah it came out very early though like gadanoff was in place probably before you would think it was but not okay. session one wow like as i started playing out what was going on with the slaves like the way i develop a story it's it's not one session ahead. The story is several sessions ahead, but it is often driven by what you're doing. 
Yeah. So like that is if you want to, and, and this this has to do with the homebrew because this is also what drives the homebrew I do. It's okay. The players are doing this. This is the story we're telling. What makes all this make sense? Why why is the world reacting this way to them? You fill in those blanks and the story develops from there. And that's generally what I'm doing. So yeah. Gandalfo was probably hmm. <clears throat> When you guys were chasing the bugbear who had originally been a goblin, or uh, the hobgoblin who had been a goblin, hobgoblin, yeah, this was originally going to be a snake cult, right? <clears throat> and then over time, as I wanted to jack things up, once I brought the shambling mounds, which is like a like just a session later, I was getting weirder with it. So they had definitely yeah, no, that's true because <laughs> that, it was the whole snakes of the Alakir motif. We were yeah. fighting the big snake as it entered the. T- okay, I see. So it kind of morphed from there. Awesome. Well, because once I brought out the priest, so so what happened in the next session was you guys were being held up, and some priests sacrificed themselves to turn into shambling mounds to fight you. Yeah. So okay, so again, is what would drive someone to make this kind of sacrifice? What kind of fanaticism? It's a really strong cult. What drives that sort of thing? Well. To my mind, this, and then oh, pretty awesome. right around there is when I started adding the Lovecraftian elements. Which you're right, I have a predilection for that. I think that's a cool. I think that's a more interesting narrative beat to me than Snake Cult. So yeah, that's why yeah. I go that way. Because now, I, like, what I like about God and Athwa is you have this this odd thing that is more a force of nature than an actual evil entity, but yeah. it's still going to destroy you in the world. And now it gets complicated. And I like that complication. And that's what I like about Lovecraft is a lot of times those things belong here, even though the, the narrator is screaming they don't. You know, they were here first. They're well, I'll say they, I'm going to give you their say. I'm going to give you props for that then, because I get the whole God uh feel uh, I, I felt like was something that was bedrock to the to the campaign setting. You know, it, it didn't feel like it came from this. So that's when it goes right. Right. I mean, for anybody out there is when the players that it just seems like oh he's had this plan and he finally did the big reveal and it was more this this uh building to that and then it, it kind of built itself the story wrote itself in a way so what i knew in session one and thank you very much like that, that's awesome to hear that and now the gig's up now i've admitted it right so, so there, there goes all my credibility what i knew in session one so this town of Woodstock that you guys were all in was on the on, just across the river from this totally virgin, gigantic, wild wood full of Woodstock, you know, like like literal wood to transport back to the to these warring kingdoms and minerals. And I knew that no one had really explored that until they put Woodstock in place just like a year ago. Woodstock's run by a mercantile consortium. It's not really part of any one kingdom. It's all a merchant in, investment, basically. And I realized no one knew, must have known about that forest. So, okay, now we have a mystery. Why did no one know about this massive forest over here? And that became a whole thing. And then, okay, so why are they kidnapping people to bring back to there? This all, like, very organically led me to, well, no one knows about that forest. No one knew about it because there was some kind of spell work going on. The spell work was hiding this massive Lovecraftian creature under the forest. The forest was, so why did the spell work come down? Something happened. The people keeping it together, the elves keeping it together, had a falling out. They broke the spell, and someone someone broke the spell work. Oh, there's been a genocide. It's been driven by sacrificing things to Gadanathwa. That's how things rolled for me. It was very organic. It was sessions ahead of where the party was, but it was basically just introducing mysteries and then solving them for myself and letting mm-hmm. the party unlock them. Yeah, I would say, I don't know where you possibly want me to pick up after, like, that, you know, four <laughs> minute each response to your response to your response. I mean, you've done your own homebrew. How does that work for you? Like, like, does it kind of evolve like that for you? Or, I mean, what's that 
What is that narrative process that leads you to the things you want to make your own? Well, are we talking about we're talking strictly the campaign itself or character changes? If character changes inorganically, you can kind of bait a little bit and see if the player takes the bait. I kind of put that out for Dave's character in Storm King's Thunder with the Ring of Winter. I provided him with an alternative solution. I want to see if he took it. He actually only kind of took it. It was interesting. <laughs> like he had it, he didn't use it very much, and use it very sparingly, very responsible use with the evil artifact. I did well. not use it at all until the very end. Mm-hmm. I never touched that thing. And I had made the decision too that I wouldn't use it unless I was in mortal danger or uh, Wilhelmina was in mortal danger. And then that's kind of what happened right at the right at the finale, you know. But if we're also talking character changes in your game in Ravenloft, Hawk came across the temptation of power for the destroyer at the pillars, which he succumbed to and absorbed that power and then had a character change. So but now all these all these that's that, look. Yeah, but that yeah, that's not the homebrew in Strahd. The homebrew in Strahd is completely character driven and narrative driven, uh, where Hawk came in. As as we all know, Hulk Hogan, uh, as a barbarian, and you wanted to wrestle. And we've talked about this many times. The wrestling rules are very, very light. So I began to craft what could be considered, uh, you know, homebrew wrestling rules um, to to kind of uh, allow you to do what you wanted to do. You know, I guess my point with that is with the pillars and the dark powers there. Yeah, the, what they inserted in that module as a as a bonus power, you could like the line of homebrew and what was published. You you would need a microscope to see it. It's uh yeah. <laughs> so like when does it right when does it become like just because it's published doesn't mean it's not still on the level of homebrew because holy fuck right like it's some I gained serious strength, five power. strength points. <laughs> if I gave you a potion that said you gained five strength points, you'd be like you're out of your mind. Like, like yeah. you know, what, are we on a game show? But it's in the book. That's like, I wrote that one article. Is it, you know, is it Monty Hall if it's canon? And that article is on our website. You can go check it out. It's published now, so go check it out. But I will say, you know, when we're walking into the wrestling ring, that, yeah, the, the lines the lines get real clear there. That's that we're completely homebrew. homebrew. So, yeah, like, Tony has driven the homebrew in Strahd for the most part. Um, Phineas is driving some of it, but Phineas is driving stuff in the future. Uh so his spotlight is still like in the distance a little like it's there, but it's in the distance. Um, but yeah, Hawk has driven a lot because of the whole wrestling angle and everyone was cool with it. So we went with it. So we, we went with the wrestling rules and I kind of had to give him his big one on one match off. So I decided to make Carol Stoyanovich uh, the, the big, uh, you know, the big heel of, uh, of Ravenloft, of Bar- Barovia. So. Not a lot of DMs would have taken that bold of an approach. I, I have to add it to you. <laughs> well, you know, you guys, everyone started to, in, and that's, I think that's a good point to what Jared was asking, is I think it's best when it's narratively driven in the terms of the story is driving the homebrew as opposed to, like, he references, for instance, um, some of the homebrew classes that, like, Matt Mercer and people will put out, like the Blood Hunter or the gunslinger because he took that over from Pathfinder. That's that's different. Uh, I don't. I haven't played a lot with that kind of stuff where I homebrew a whole class. Um, but any homebrew that I'm usually doing is coming because the characters are 
driving or the story requires it to continue and you can't find it in in any of the books you see i think there is a time to kind of homebrew classes and abilities it's just not early these were our first 5e campaigns yeah you know so i think we were really for me i'm like well why start adding homebrew when we're still exploring what's here now at the same time as we've gone through it i do have a whole set of homebrew rules that tries to make the weapon use add more uh interesting things like maneuvers you can do with weapons yeah. sort of yeah. like push shove that kind of thing but going further with it <clears throat> and like i haven't rolled it out yet it's something that might roll out in a future game it's complicated and i need to make sure it adds interesting it's fun it adds tactical depth but it doesn't take very long that's really important to me i don't want to add a tack on combat system that's going to take us a bunch of extra rolls so like and there also the, not in the campaign with all spellcasters that decide to come to your table, right? Like, right, right. Cool, I mean, thanks, guys. That's <laughs> awesome. We talked about creating uh, homebrew magical items and how to replicate them using existing effects and have that safe. I have to agree with Thorne. Certainly not early on a can in a in a five E career would I do custom classes, but I have to tell you there are, and I'm not a fan of this phrase. They're problematic, honestly, because you're creating a class, that thing better be friggin' balanced. Like, it's going to go into an accounting textbook. Because then you either create a character class that's underpowered, or it's overpowered. And everyone's like, ah, like, what is what is this person doing? Like, this is crazy. What have you done? And then you're, like, you're retro-balancing them, and I've had this problem. And it's caused... I did it in 2E, and it, it can... Uh, it can really kind of derail things, mechanically oh. speaking. Yeah, some of the tightest, I mean, I think there's a reason some of the tightest uh, systems are the most play-tested systems, right? Because they work out all that stuff that you're not necessarily going to see when you're first putting it together. And that's the thing, is, and it's hard to play-test a class on the fly. Yeah. And, and the nature of, now, and if you're in a different situation, you can maybe create a class, play-test it through three or four campaigns, and you have it pretty balanced. I mean, 5e went through one of the longest playtesting cycles I've yeah. ever seen. Oh, sure, and a sure. lot of it was open source, just having players play it again and again and again and give feedback. That's a really tight playtesting system that the initial version of the game went through. And things came out pretty well balanced, except for Rangers. Ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Ranger. I'm still going to play a Ranger. I want to see. You're doing I, a whole I, Ranger I, party. Oh, my God. I think Your hippopotamus in Tomb of Annihilation should be a Ranger. Oh, yeah, that would be very useful. Now, I have done I haven't done um, too many homebrew classes. I've done homebrew races, uh, like a homebrew to werewolf. Those usually work out mm. fine. Because races don't add enough. They don't add as much to the character as their whole class progression. And I have on occasion homebrewed things into the classes or just like house ruled them, you know, uh, you know, like like allowing other other thing other classes than fighters in second edition to get multi attack, things like that. I mean, isn't that somewhat of, I don't know how much you guys have looked through it, but some of what they did to some controversy in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything with the idea of pretty much breaking out any of the idea of, of race and stuff and just saying, where do you, what is your character? What do they do? And here's some, uh, here's some bonuses you can get. Where do you put them and why? You know, and certain traits you might get because of your ancestry or whatever it might be. I mean, that's kind of like a way of, that you're homebrewing, but within, strangely, a a published piece of, of, of material. 
Yeah, and it gives you a lot more flexibility to homebrew a race like that, which is, yeah, I think it's a good way to go. And if you don't see exactly what you want, you can kind of make something that's similar to a power they give you and just yeah. benchmark it, yeah. which, which we'll get into some in a little bit here. But like a class is a little different. Now, at the same time, homebrewing a class can be very rewarding. It's just you just got to make sure it's balanced or make sure your players are fine with something that's a little overpowered or underpowered or they're really into it. I'm always cautious about letting players come in and play something they found online. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd rather mm-hmm. us make something together that's narratively driven. And, you know, which brings me back to the other thing. You know, a lot of times kind of adding a class or adding something isn't narratively driven. It's just, hey, I think I can do something cool. That's great. But my best homebrew has always been driven by what's going on with the story, what's going on with the world. It's driven by the campaign internally, not so much, hey, what cool mechanics can I play with? Uh, that's what's worked out best for me, at least. I literally would never have written a wrestler. I mean, I was one, right? But right. now we, we're almost to the point where we could probably create a fucking wrestler class, I think. I'm not sure, but sort of subclass or something. No, yeah, that uh, that transition had worked pretty smoothly because that was a feature of how wrestling worked versus you were giving my individual character powers on top of whatever he had. But, yeah, benchmarking, honestly, classes, I think it'd be more challenging than benchmarking items. In some yeah. respects, especially if you yeah, map up the absolutely. whole class one to 20. And then what do you do? Your character's at level seven and going, I'm really laggy behind the party. So you're tweaking it. I mean, you can. I, I've been in situations where characters got up at a level and it, it's like now I'm going to let's make a deal moment. And like, right. you, you don't want to do that. Like it should, That's what the beauty of 5e. You leveled up. Go handle your shit, guys. There it is. There's no surprises. <laughs> You tell me what you're doing. You know what's available. You have questions. Let me know. Yeah. I will say, like, that's something we're avoiding. We don't want to get into the money hall moment. There are plenty of people out there who have a game group and have players who that works fine with. You know, and, and it's not, this is not this is nothing against collaborative DMing. Like, if you have a group where that works with, we can go and say, okay, I'll give you a tweak here. I'm, I'm sorry that came out a little low. Do it. Fine. You know, that's, that's great. Yeah. If, if you're not 100% sure your group's going to be fine with it or you're, yeah, if you're, if you're like in an average group like regular people and you're not all super tight and super cool do look out for that because you can you know, the guy can you can have a player's like oh my guy's underpowered my guy's underpowered my, and you start playing make, let's make a deal and now they know they can lobby you for more power every time they level up mm. which can be a problem not saying it always is if you have a group where that's not awesome bully for you but if you know if you're not 100 percent sure keep that in mind so it, with narrative driven homebrew jared asked here when did I choose the moment to turn? Cassidus. Uh, <laughs> Every time. <laughs> Erasmus, Cassidus, whatever. I cannot uses. keep his name straight. It's all uses, yeah. It's all. Is that the is that the gag, Tony? Is it all us? It, oh. I, I, I feel like my my next character may have an us at the end. This is us. <laughs> I should have named him Felix instead. <laughs> You had Alhazred and just the, oh my God, now Alhazred is uh, Naralathotep of the, uh, the Million Faces. All the other, all your other wizard characters are just uses off of Alhazred. That's the, <laughs> there we do. There we go. That's how you homebrew right there. But So like in that narrative, Tony's character had been doing things, as you mentioned, for a long time, looking for books of forbidden knowledge, which I had put out there in front of him where Tony was also a Lovecraft fan and that he was playing that character a little bit as someone who would take that bait. And I led him along until we got to a point where it made sense for him to get trapped in an extra dimensional space by one of these beings he is beginning to contact and bargain with. And then there was a worm in his cage that was his only way out. 
And by following that worm, he escaped, but he returned as the larval mate. So it was narratively driven in a spot where he was in a bad spot and he took the worm instead of seeing what happened, instead of staying in the cage. So he had a choice. He took that path. And I felt like that was reasonable. I mean, how did that play out for you, Tony? Well, okay, there was a sticker shock factor there. You have to realize. So what's going on with your character? <laughs> well, I'm uh, 185 pounds of dry undead bugs. That, that's how I feel like right now. But it, we talked about this previously, too, that you have to have a little bit of trust with your DM that he, he or she has not completely, absolutely nuked your character. You have to trust that. It's going to be for a couple games. Actually, he didn't stay like that indefinitely. He eventually took a different form down the road, but he was something much worse than just being a larval mage at that point. <laughs> now, with that, that kind of dovetails, as you guys were kind of talking about this, because what I remember from our discussions about the pile of undead bugs mage, right, is that no one else in the party knew about this. This was just between DM and PC, correct? Yeah, and what's really oh, hilarious what? about that, what's really hilarious about that is, and I guess that twice because it's so freaking ridiculous, is these guys thought I was up to something and followed me around like they were looking like for clues around where I ate lunch because right. they thought I was so suspicious for the 12 levels leading up to that until something really preposterous happened, and for that they were oblivious. But that's an interesting thing because that was completely a homebrew idea that was driven narratively, but it was also just homebrew between you and Tony. So you obviously didn't say it during the game. You must have contacted no, him after no, that, the that, fact, right? So the way we handled that was direct email between us. Uh, so if we wanted a conversation to be more text, this was, well, to be honest, this was actually, um, God, was this before smartphones or very early in smartphones? You sent him a telegraph. <laughs> yes, he some sent sort. me a pigeon. We're having conversations every night using Morse code with flashlights between our houses. <laughs> so we, so I, I had planned out what this was and I got to say, now not every DM would do it this way. I didn't ask for his input at all. That's kind of my style of DMing. I'm very glad Tony went along with it. Not all players are happy with that. I told him what happened to him. That was how I handled that. That's how I prefer to handle it. There's especially today, especially in the way kind of players play today, that might not be the best way to handle it in your group. But I just I, I sent it to him and we played it out. Now it was secret except for I kept after some time I kept kind of dropping hints. Right. And eventually he did get turned into a pile of bugs in front of the party. Like they did eventually find out, and that was that right. was quite a session. Right. <laughs> Well, I couldn't be happier to, to freak those guys out. Like, finally, there's your big I told you so. Congratulations. I was up to no good. What you did with that was you just didn't change my character's race, hit dice, everything. You added basically an addendum, like a template to that class. Yes. And yes. that's what made it playable. He had the undead template and you change things like bludgeoning and magic resistances in some cases, vulnerabilities in others, and so forth and so on. So it wasn't utterly ridiculous any more than so, it was. So so what I did there, and, and that's actually a great point, because if you're going to do this, you don't want to take anything away from the player. 
I mean, other than perhaps his humanity, but really, what's that worth? Or his soul. Humanity's soul. What's that worth to a player? Yeah, but not mechanical. Don't take away <laughs> mechanical things. Yeah. Take away other shit that doesn't matter. Like, yeah, souls, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, take, you, you don't want to take away any of the things they built their character to do. What I did is exactly what Tony just said. I went to the Larval Mage uh, uh, monster in the monster manual. I picked up the things that I felt were salient to his character. This is very similar to how we made Erasmus, too. I did the same thing when we put the half-giant... Yeah. On Erasmus, I went to the Storm Giant uh, Monster Manual. I picked the things I was okay moving over. I left, I, I, I reduced a lot of things. I left some things behind and said that's not coming over. And I basically, yeah, you add it to the player like a, like, like, like an addendum, like a kit to, to the player character. So they just get new abilities. They get some new downsides. And the Larval Mage did, like he said, kind of make him more or less immortal and very hard to hurt for what had been a fairly squishy wizard before that. Yeah, couldn't crush me with boulders anymore. Ha, take that. <laughs> but you were resistant to, I think, all physical damage. Not Maybe not immune to all of it, but I think you were resistant to all of it. Well, you have to come at me with radiant damage. That, that would make sense. Anyway. I mean, that would fire. make sense. Fire was fire was effective, like other things were. But you were physically very like like very resilient at that point. Well, I had, it was made up of a lot of bugs. You see, I can perform... Yeah, it's like hitting a swarm. It's always going to be half damage, you know, just because you can only hit so many of them. Well, and that's the thing. And he could also turn into a swarm and he could go and he could move through tiny cracks. Literally, all I'm thinking of is I don't know if you guys remember the cartoon Spider-Man and his amazing friends when he was with uh, Icecan and Firestar Uh, and he fought Swarm, which was literally just a swarm of bugs in the shape of a human with a cloak on. A swarm, a swarm. Dave, no one remembers that, please. <laughs> oh, go on YouTube. I bet you find it. Swarm. Spider-Man. That's probably worth friends. it. You're welcome. You see, I just, I just went back to uh, Buffy. Probably on Disney Plus right now. <laughs> I just went back to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's like in the earlier seasons, there are assassins who come after her, one of whom is a man who turns into just bugs. Bugman was one of the assassins. That's terrible. It was basically exactly what Tony was. It was a larva. It was basically a larval form. It was the same thing Tony was. That's terrible. Is that the same? Was was Buffy the same show? They had the the silence guys that yeah. would come in. And, oh, those guys were creepy as hell. Yeah, hush, oh, they were hush. And then there's the musical episode once more with feeling, which I think is fantastic. I, I can. There's still some of those songs I sing along to. Uh, but we're getting we were horrifying. We digress. I think it just yeah. tells you how old we are. I am the age of nerd who loved Buffy, Angel, and Fire. <laughs> we are far in digression at this point. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> you should leave the digression to me. So when you're doing, you're throwing a template on there, there has to be kind of uh, a bit of balancing in and must itself because when you made Erasmus, if you had given him like a giant template and said, okay, well, you're a storm giant now. All right, have plus two to your strength. Like, what? So I have like a 14 strength? I don't really feel very giantly, and you did not do that. You gave him a much higher strength. You gave him like a 19 or a 20. Actually, you gave him a 21 strength. Yeah, I think I put him over 20. I mean, I didn't move it all the way up because Storm Giant, full Storm Giant, 29. Yeah. But I I took it like, I think I just like split the difference or something. I, I. and that's one thing to do this. Like, if you're going to bro- roll that kind of thing out on a player, we've mentioned this before, you got to give them something worth having. Like, you, you don't you don't jip them when you're turning them into another race. You, you you bring the goods. You bring some good stuff that player gets to use. On a second note with that tone, too, it's something you have said before uh, when you were talking about with Storm Kings, where you were giving us a lot of different bonuses, uh, you know, through the story in a way of buffing us up and juicing us up for the big battles. But you had always said, like, what is it really if I up you – 
I give you a plus two on something, so that changes your role plus two. It's not, it doesn't break the bank. So in the same way with this, with Erasmus, the wizard, there have been a handful of times that you've utilized your strength for something, you know, like throwing a, a, a chair through a wall when we were fighting vampires to get sunlight. And other than that, what are you doing? You're casting fireball, you're throwing lightning bolt, you're casting fly, right? You're being a wizard. So he does occasionally punch someone real good. Every now and then, right? But it's it's not something that, you know, uh, giving it's your barbarian different. some massive strength buff can can start to turn into. You know, it, it he doesn't use it as much, you know, in but his At the character. same time, I will say, or the Erasmus transformation also did come with some fireball-like powers. Because yeah. storm giants can throw lightning. Yeah. So I gave him some of that. I I thought carefully about how many. Like, Tony, do you remember how many, how many lightning balls he gets a day? He gets... One lightning ball per rest. Long per rest. So, and that's a little bit similar to like a fireball. So I essentially gave yeah. him an extra fireball uh, per per short rest, not just long rest. And did I give you anything else with that? Did I give you an actual lightning bolt? Um, no, no, it what that was a lightning bolt. It was the, there was a ball lightning, and uh, did it recharge on a short rest? I gotta go back and check my sheet now. That's hilarious. But. Yeah, it, like it, it was pretty solid. I mean, I had that at level five or six, and it was like 88. So that yeah. was pretty healthy. So, yeah. I mean, and I knowingly did that. I gave you essentially an extra fireball. And that was, I mean, so the strength boost, uh, he got the amphibiousness, he got the uh, weather, uh, he had some weather control maybe. He couldn't um, do that at first. He had to build up to that without side effects. And then he got, um, and, and he got, and he got the, and he got the uh, basically the lightning fireball essentially, which I knew was going to give him an extra fireball per day, and I felt like that was okay. I mean, I could deal with a necklace if I wanted to too. So, I mean, that's kind of how I benchmarked that out. Was looking at okay, what all is he getting? Is any of this going to break my game? And it wasn't. Twenty-one strength was going to be strong for a wizard, but he still wasn't going to be proficient in the good weapons or anything. You know, he wasn't getting multi-attack. And if he did, so yeah, he, he would have multi-attack. So who cares? Yeah. So that's you know he did, and I gave him a boulders to throw, which do some pretty decent damage too. But it's all, it all, like, none of that broke the game, and and I made sure it didn't. That's, you know, I benchmarked it against what could be done, what could he do, what did other monsters do, what could other players do. So I kind of knew he wasn't going to unbalance anything. Yeah, and Thor, I'd say that's about what I was just about to say, too. It was not out of the realm of what is possible for him if he found the right magic. I, I What if he found a, a tome of bodily exercise? Well, now his strength gets jacked. And he absolutely has capacity to cast Fireball, and he has a certain number of spell slots. So it's not like you gave him stuff that completely was was out of line for the character to have gotten. You just, it was flavored in a different way. It came through something else. It came through, the, obviously, the Deck of Many Things, Wish thing. Uh, but outside of that, it was still, it reminds me very much of Tony uh, with the magic items, where you took something existing, broke it down, and put it back together in a way that made sense for your story you were telling. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really it exactly, is you, know, you can you can do a lot if you understand the power levels of the things around where your characters are. Because yeah. if you know that, you can kind of know, I can add a thing here, I can add a thing there. Don't get crazy with anything. Don't add at-will fireballs. Like, I mean, <laughs> use your common sense. And, and I oh, wish God, there was close. A... <laughs> Fireball, the cantrip. <laughs> there you go. I mean, like, and I wish there was an easier way for me to, 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 to tell you how to make sure you don't do that. But, like, it's it's mostly just, like, common sense. Like, am I okay with him having an extra fireball every day? Sure. Am I okay with him having an extra fireball every round? No. You know, it, it's you figure out what your comfort level is and what you can give him. And you do have to be sensitive to the other players because you can't make him so much better than anyone else 
that he's going to overshadow the whole party. This was a party where everyone else got a deck, also played with a deck of many things. So many of them had gained like three levels, gotten magic items. They all knew what they were in for. Lost their souls. Yeah. Lost their souls yeah, to the void yeah, for all yeah. time. Hey, you know, you, 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 you draw your cards, you t- takes your chances. Currently with Count Rufflegay, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. He's still, yeah that guy is still around in the campaign if, if uh, Erasmus <laughs> ever decides to save him. I think Erasmus has decided that he doesn't really care. Lawful good Erasmus. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saving the Count. No, no, no. The the Count has the guy's soul. Has, has, yeah, has yeah, a yeah. soul. Yeah. He has the guy's soul. I can't um, wait to tell my buddy, I'm like, hey, you remember that campaign you were in two years ago? I'm about to free your soul. You should come out at level five. Won't that be awesome? Don't be so jealous. I think it's perfect. Oh, wait, can I get back in, dude? Absolutely. It's, it's a big campaign, maybe, but it's a big campaign. <laughs> so with that, with the benchmarking, you kind of have to take into account the flavor of the game, too. Because, yeah, of course, we're talking about what's good for per round versus uh, per day. But if, you know, if you're in a Dave-style campaign in Ravenloft where they're playing Magic tight, then maybe certain things don't fit that flavor as well as something where Storm King's Thunder, where I had literal airships having races, spell jamming ships, and flying sky malls where you can go purchase, well, there's only one, magical items. That's a completely different flavor. That was really, I had that, like, maybe that was like an 8 or 9 out of 10 magical at the same time, I'd be shocked if it was on a deck of many things somewhere in Ravensloft. It'd be the perfect Ravensloft item. Got to even it's ask. So I guarantee you that witch. The better maybe that's probably what she was reading the Taraka deck. Well, actually, a deck yeah. of many things. You never like, knew. It's the flames. <laughs> it's all for you. Uh, I and Tone with that too, right? So it's a magic light campaign, and what you have, what. Hawk has started to do more recently is attack with his spear of Kavan, right? His blood spear, magical thing, because what the wrestling rules are cool, but your attacks aren't magic, at least yet, right? So it's it kind of balanced itself out. I can't choke out, out the werewolf or the ghost. I'm it balanced right. itself out in that way, you know? So it was, it's a boon. You get to do certain things that a normal barbarian can't, but it doesn't make your attacks magical or something. So, and you started to find as you fought werewolves and ghosts and all these other things that, oh, well, yeah, I can get them in a headlock, but that's not necessarily going to help me right now. You, you know, that was actually, I would have done that differently. Yeah. Because if I go through the trouble of homebrewing a, a, a wrestling system, I would have given him a way to make his wrestling mag- uh, attacks magical. Because oh. we, we go through the I mean, trouble. The story is not yet complete. But it I get that. But it's been going for like a year. I mean, it's it's hey, close. it's a slow burn, baby. It's a slow burn. <laughs> He's been using predominantly that spear for like two thirds of our Ravenloft journey, I think, at least half. <laughs> like, but just just to put my two cents in, and, and yeah. you know, it's UDM the your way, and it's, that's that's cool. It's been a great campaign. And I'm not not criticizing. No, I got but you. for but for me, I actually would have added an item that would have let him make his wrestling attacks magical. Because to me, it's like, if we've done all that work to add this, I want to play with it. Yeah. And I'm sure the, the player does too. So I, like, that's my two cents on it. Like, I would have yeah. I would have rather those attacks been magical so we could see how that played out across the course of a campaign. And you absolutely could have too because of the way in which I, I broke it out, right? I've said before, I built it off partly barbarian raging, but also a lot of the monk abilities in terms of the unarmed, the martial arts in essence. Yeah. And monks at a specific level 
just gain the ability that their attacks are now their unarmed attacks are considered magical, you know, key empowered or whatever. So I absolutely could have you could have worked that in even within the same realm of how I had put together uh, how the how the unarmed attacks and stuff work, you know? Yeah. Like you give him a belt. I probably would have done it on the belt or I would have let him make hand wraps out of the silver. Uh, like we, we did mean, a lot of silver and weapons. You know? Well, hold on. I'm writing things down. Hold on, give me a second here. <laughs> I have, I have, uh, I have ideas. There, there are ideas, but some things are have been a slow burn. Some things have been a slow burn. And Dave probably didn't realize that I was going to go to the dark side in the way I did. I mean, there's a lot of things that you know. And lose his title. The belt no longer fits around his swollen belly. Yeah, that was. Yeah. <laughs> he got all like paunchy, and the belt fell off. Yeah. <laughs> He's old Hulk, he, he's NWO Hulk Hogan. He's bigger around the middle than he used to be. Yeah. That's why he was very slimming, you know? Very slimming. What I like about 5e with how they handled magic was that in the previous editions, you had creatures that would only be hit or harmed by X plus weapons. And this yeah. kind of, this, this leveled it. It's either it's magical or it's not magical. End of story. Mm. At the same time, I have talked before about how, uh, you know, my vampires are physically resistant, whether your weapon is whether you're throwing magic at them or not, because, yeah, it's just that's just, you know, too easy to get around the resistances. Narratively speaking, uh, as you found mechanically, too, it, it took away from the ability of like Homeldale to really pose as much of a threat as you were hoping him to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we we, we saw him. when I had you guys go in the Christmas land and fight Charlie Manx. And in essence, throw a, a higher level vampire at the party and see what happens, right? I mean, we've talked about that. Um, yeah, and as, as vampires are cool and they have certain powers, but at a point, man, they become just tasty cakes. You know, like the party just carves them up. Well, I mean, there's a lot of different variety of vampire, in all fairness. Well, not and, the monster manual, but <laughs> that's the well, thing, and that's where it comes into whether are you homebrewing something, are you starting to kit bash a little bit of a vampire or not, you know? Well, I mean, we already talked about vampires' real secret weapon is that magical charm ability, because yeah. that that really it's not as nasty as it was in previous editions, where it's just like you, I own you, <laughs> like go slit, go slit your mother's throat. I think that's a great idea. There I go, let me get the straight razor. Um, but really, all those powerful warriors, well, you know what? They weren't meditating. They weren't guarding their mind. They weren't prepared for these things. Mm. You, you know, this does touch on another aspect of homebrew. It's a little more subtle and a little also touches on the balancing. So actually, Lord Hommeldale, I think I did pump up his resistance so magic spells didn't immediately – You did. Did like half damage. And that is another form of on-the-fly homebrew to fit the narrative. Because I wanted him to be more of a big bad, and I recognized, because I played with the group for a while, you guys were going to chew him up. So that is tied to everything else we're talking about here, that the minor tweaks you make to monsters to make them the right level threat they need to be, that you balance based on just knowing your party and understanding how much damage they do and how they work and what they're good at and, and what's going to basically... Now, you're not trying to beat the party when you do this, but you're trying to at least make it a fight. Because he would have been dead like in the first round if I hadn't added that. Like it really the minute was he crazy. went to mist, yeah, you, you were screwed. So you had to do something, or else it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna turn into anything other than a uh, literal bloodbath. Yeah, I know. Like, like literally, like you guys killed him in three rounds. You'd send him to mist in three rounds. You would have sent him to mist in one round. Bad <laughs> <That> adjustment. 
<laughs> well, okay. you got to recognize that. Like that is something like, like narratively, if you don't want that vampire to die in a round, you got to make some changes. And that's a party that's that had gotten, and that's a party that got drained out pretty good because you put us through the paces before that. And even with that, we were still coming underpowered, and we still were just hauling ass on this guy. I, I mean, I am a bossologist, so I mean, I feel like I can speak with, <laughs> with great uh, authority on this matter. Does that also Vamp- make you a proctologist? No. No. I don't know. They seem similar. No. Uh, don't get our allergies messed up. But, okay, the dark so, one. <laughs> either way, you're an expert on assholes, right? Uh, Leave politics out of this. So we have uh, a vampire who typically is a minion-using kind of opponent. They like I, the way Thorne did it in the one battle with Hommeldale was, and even Charlie Manx, you're it's very rare for this type of villain, unless he's confronting he or she is confronting a much weaker group to come out there and solo them. And even if they are, it's not a good move. You're gonna fight outnumbered five, six, seven to one. Like, really, are you like a super ninja? Like, how tough <laughs> are you? They're gonna wear you down. So you utilize your other minions to chew uh, the party up, drain their abilities, you utilize this magical, wonderful, legendary assistance that the vampire has, use them sparingly, and, uh, you know, they're uh, cutting enough to work all the angles. So, Tony, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of the, the narr- how narrative leads to homebrew. Do you have anything where you've done like that? Where I have homebrewed a class, yes. Uh, no, not so much a class. Yes. I mean, a class or like where you've kind of gone into some of like Larval Mage type thing. I remember you had one character that wound up getting a Venom type suit in one of your games. Oh, like, yeah, that. Okay, so that happened. Um, <laughs> I feel like I owned Stanley and Jack Kirby some royalties. So maybe Todd McFarlane too. I could send him uh, some checks for that. So, um, how did that come to pass? So a wizard was trying to manufacture a magical item and it got infused with their spirit and i'm like okay so what kind of inspiration am i drawing from i'm like well he's getting bonded with this thing um it's gonna be venom so he created a separate personality he had this black suit that gave him powers it shape changed um it amped his abilities a bit it and had a completely separate personality so when he go to sleep it would get up and do things it was a lot of fun i really had a ton of fun playing that uh, symbiote, which is which was just an item on the party mage. Now, did you did you build that out from whole cloth tone, or did you do similar to when you built the artifacts with Storm Kings and you broke something else existing out and kind of reformed it? Uh, something else existing reformed. This was basically an intelligent object. There was a lot of rules and one, two E. Yeah. This was kind of like more floating a little bit more on a relic's power because his powers were so preposterous, except it, it wasn't looking to overpower. There, there is ego in fifth edition too, by the way. That's still around. Weapon ego, item ego. We oh, still. Yeah. oh yeah. But this some sword is an intelligent item. Wasn't looking to overpower its host's mind. It was looking to survive with its host. So it kind of had a different modus operandi. Uh, yeah, that that was a lot of fun. Like, oh, the wizard is absolutely jacked. What the hell's going on? Like, were you hitting the the bench and drinking uh like protein drinks all night? Like, you're shredded, man. Like, oh my god. <laughs> He's shredded and wearing and wearing a and wearing basically an acrobat's bodysuit. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys. And he was dressed, which was great because he had a spider on the front. It was it was a masterpiece. <laughs> I, Nothing to see here. No. 
the evil drow mage with a venom suit. Now, I mean, narratively, you mentioned it a little bit, but like, so what did bring you there? Like, again, this is a narrative driven homebrew that you didn't plan from the beginning. I mean, what is just what brought you to that spot? So he was tampering with this and tampering with this. And he was, you know, this is evil mage. And I said, okay, you got to make me some good rolls here. And he made some fantastic rolls. And I'm like, all right, well, you've had this breakthrough. This is going to happen. You're going to want to be bonded with this. What's the what's the coolest outcome I can throw around? I'm like, here it is. You have a venom suit. Congratulations. I didn't get to do the maximum carnage arc, tragically. I mean, that's but, pretty boss, though, dude. That's a pretty boss. Like, <laughs> that's, yeah. And, and, so this stupid. happened before – this was a game I was in, and I think it happened before I'd really gotten too deep into, into homebrew in my own games. And that was – I mean, it's kind of the same thing I do, though. It's – you had the mystery the, – the mystery and the problem came up through playing in the game. It came up organically, na- driven by the narrative – and you took it in the direction you thought was cool. You basically solved the mystery in your head, and that's what led to your homebrew. I feel like if players are going to push and dig, and they get to a something, whether they're freeing some type of entity that they gets absorbed into their body, or a magical item, or a spell book, there has to be that really maximum cool outcome. Yeah. Because if not, like, why, why am I searching? Like, I'm not going to go to the 100th level of a dungeon to find a plus one hand axe. You, you want to find, like, Poseidon's trident. You want to find something really <laughs> asinine. Not that you should hand those out like you're handing out Snickers bars when people are, you know, are standing around waiting. But you have to have them in your world somewhere. And sooner or later, someone finds them. You know, it's almost like this, like, it's almost like a side quest. When they really, like you said, when they really start to dig around and poke around and get into things, that tends to lead to a lot of the cool homebrew. Which is also why, maybe it's worth saying... Wizards are some of the most fun characters to DM because wizards are the most likely to do that stupid shit. They're going to read the books. <laughs> they're going to read the books and they're going to make the packs. Uh, it, at least that's been our experience, you know. And once they start digging, you can kind of make the, you know, you can make the hole as deep as you want to. Don't undersell the warlock. I feel the warlock will completely dig that hole to the center of the earth. That is absolutely true. The, 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 the Warlock is willing to make deals for power. That's true. But the Warlock already kind of comes in already having done that. So do, the, are they, do they necessarily need to do it again? Maybe, maybe not, you know? Well, Where the wizard is constantly amassing. Constantine sold his soul 15 ways from Sunday. <laughs> he did. Absolutely. That's the, and that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, there's room for you to be, definitely homebrew around Warlock packs. Where your warlock, maybe you know, as the game goes on, they meet something something more powerful than their patron, and maybe they make a new deal, and you homebrew what that new deal means. That could be really cool. And I've read people doing stuff like that. So you're right. I mean, the warlock's got that capability if you, as the DM, are willing to get into their pact relationship and get into them possibly making new relationships. I just so gave that, Dave an idea. That, no, that. <laughs> That leads me to no. I I I think the warlock and playing with the Thorin. We've talked about this a lot. Uh, I like the idea of the patron um, pact thing and that and that mattering to a degree. Like there are there are consequences. Anyway, that's a separate thing. In a in a similar vein, I haven't done it, but we talked a little about it, and it sounds like you guys both have. When it comes to homebrewing, literally a whole class. For me, what's the difference between? Adding flavor to a class, an existing class, and 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 in essence, almost maybe a reskinning or an altering of some of the the flavor or the the description of it, 
or creating one entirely out of whole cloth and when, where, why, and how? Like, what what would make you want to go to that? Because I look at something like, uh, for instance, they talk about the Blood Hunter class, the Mercer's Blood Hunter class. And I look at it and I go, okay, but why? I don't even quite understand the class, like where they come from. And I've read it up and I just, it doesn't get it. Or Matt Colville came out with the Ill Rigger class, which is kind of this demonic type class. So for you guys, is it, you know, more flavoring something existing or creating something entirely new? I think flavoring is a very neat option if your player is going to buy into it and it fits the campaign world and it opens a couple doors without making things weird. One of the real failures of 4E, regrettably, was they had all these powers you could get. I mean, literally dozens and dozens of powers you could trade up and trade down and swap like trading cards, and <laughs> most of them sucked. It was tragic. You spent all this time looking for this spell, and I'm like, it does this, and it sounds great. It really is not going to accomplish a whole lot on the actual battlefield, which was a real shame. So I think that's a better approach than trying the whole cloth, because you're really buying the stock. You're taking a loan to buy the stock if you're doing the whole cloth approach. So, you know, I mentioned before, like, I haven't really rolled out a, a homebrew class that I've, I've had a player play. I have made some on the side. Uh, none specifically come to mind. But I will say, what kind of drives me to them when I want to screw around with it is there's a mechanic there, especially if it should reference something that, like, especially if it should reference some realistic aspect of the game that I'm not seeing reference, like a military kind of aspect. Right. There's a mechanic I want to play with, and that's when I start considering, do you want to build another class for it? However, I often handle that instead by adding new options to an existing class. Right. Like I'm more likely to build a new path than to build a new class, depending on what I want to do. But that's, I think, really what drives you to do it is, is there's something you want to see in the game that you don't see. Or if, especially in the campaign, if you have, you know, things in your world, like say, for instance, like pilots, you know, like say you're an Eberron. And Eberron has these airships and these, and these maglev trains that are driven by magic and harnessed elementals. Well, that leaves open the opportunity to build a class that's all about harnessing magic and elementals to drive things. It's kind of like an artificer, but the artificer doesn't do that. Yeah. So it's like like there's room there. And if, you, if you're building your campaign world from scratch, you're liable to find those things. One real example, one easy example would be I could certainly build a, a priest's sphere or priest uh, religion around Gadanothwa in the Woodstock Wanderers that would have unique things. The spaghetti fear. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of thing is what drives you to do it and also what makes it worthwhile, that there's something in the world that you want to give a class to and ideally have a player play, or maybe you play as an NPC, and then you get to make up some interesting things that have interesting interactions you don't see elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes yeah. you want to do it. But as we talked about earlier, the balancing is very tricky, and you've really got to have a player who's willing to, you know, let you lead on how you want to make it work and fit in your campaign. Because if you have a player who's like the, you know, the rules divorce attorney, like we've talked about, they're always going to be lobbying for you to give them more. I did uh, a character in one of the campaigns you were in, Thorn, where I had a gunslinger. Grant was my character. And he, uh, what, what, okay, I'm coming with an NP, DM NPC. So what's interesting about him? You know, there's already warriors and there's a paladin and mages and rogues. And then we had a pretty, we had like, like eight players. He utilized firearms. He brought some with, some later became available within the game. He came from a different place altogether. So we had some insights that were different, but he was an alien to that world, so to speak. And that was actually, he rolled off a lot of fighter rules. 
So I had a core class, change his weapon proficiencies out. He eventually learned how to use a sword because, you know, that was a good thing to do in the Dungeons and Dragons world. But he had it. It's hard to come by in (laughs) D&D. Right. But he had it. For those really nasty fights, he had it. He found magical ammo and he got his gun enchanted later. We had a lot of fun with that. So where did you build that class from? Like, I was always under the impression that that was a Rifts class that you poured in into D&D. I mean, where, where did where did the inspiration and the balance come from? Super complicated, but uh, if I do it in two sentences, he was from a different campaign uh, who I dropped into this one. So, yeah, he was in Rifts. I brought him in here. And I said, well, obviously, what would he be? He'd be a warrior. Because, I mean, we're talking second edition, first edition D&D. You got what? Fighter, thief, rogue, wizard, uh, and cleric. It, they're, they got rid of the thief. It's just a thing now. It's rogues. But, uh, you know, he wasn't a rogue. So maybe I made a case for a ranger, but then he's casting spells and all kinds of other stuff was going on. So throw him in a core class and you build out from that. So how did you like, like, I mean, how did you bring him over? Did, did you did you let him keep the stuff he had in that other game? Like, I know Rifts has a lot of attacks per round. Like, like, just what set him apart that you brought in, and how did you design that? Okay, so still functioning on the same rules of attacks per round, uh, marksmanship, range combat, all those things. He'd obviously be a ranged warrior. He wouldn't be a heavily armored fighter, so he'd be working much more in his decks to avoid attacks, uh, jumping out of the way and what have you. But then, and you use, uh, there are, as you are aware of, there's plenty of different firearms that are available in the earlier editions. And you just make them accessible, make them something that are now therefore on par with what the party's using. You know, if the party's got, like, you know, a pl- someone's got a plus three flaming rapier, maybe you don't give them an ordinary six shooter. Yeah, but it's really the thing, because it's a good, I think from what I'm getting from this is something I've thought of as well, is that in essence, everything, every class can always be brought back to its ancestor class of fighter, wizard, cleric, thief. Like those four ones, like you are something of that. So a druid is a cleric. They're just in the forest, right? And, you know, a warlock is kind of like a wizard, except they don't, you know, they don't study for their spells. They didn't go to college. Right. But what changes it is the little, the little detail pieces that do it. So, for instance, I know um, in Pathfinder, they have a gunslinger class, uh, which is pretty cool. And they have things like grit and stuff that allow you to, in essence, you know, burn your luck as that, you know, that rough and tumble six shooter guy. Um, and I saw when they b- pulled it over into 5E uh, for, uh, it was actually for the Critical Role team because they were playing Pathfinder originally. So they ported the Gunslinger over and tried to give some of those details, some of the stuff about misfires and some of the stuff about grit that that it was those little details that changed him from being a fighter with a bow, let's say, into a gunslinger, you know? Because in essence, a lot of the mechanics are going to be the same. And you could go in the DMG and see about pistols. But it's those little things that, that I think start to really change out the class compared to something else. With that, you have to make sure you put the flavor of the description in there. For, for example, if your gunslinger blast someone in the face point blank with their cult and they're you know that should be a moment they should be like oh you shot this guy in the head for 11 damage okay next that that is your opportunity as a dm for a literal red dead redemption 
cinematic moment. Yeah. Take advantage of it. Brutal criticals and, uh, you know, things like that. Yeah. Or the battle maneuvers that a, uh, a fighter can get as a, as a battle master, you know, the ability to disarm opponent by shooting the weapon out of their hands, things of that nature. And really anyone can get those with the uh, right feet. So a yeah. lot of that stuff is available and it, Tony, it sounds like a lot of what you did was basically you ported this guy into D&D by essentially rebuilding him with his ex existing D&D abilities, right? Exactly. I mean, so that's, you know, that, that's I think that's really what we're getting to with a lot of this stuff is, you know, you, you, you come up with the concept, you have the narrative reasons, and then you kind of look for the tools in the parts within the game system to do it. And when you don't have them, you'd make something similar. Like, you fabricate, but again, you're fabricating based on what you know works in the system. You're not just out there kind of, you know, well, you can make some things that are wildly creative, don't get me wrong, but usually you want to benchmark against the system so you know how it's going to interact with the rest of the other, with, with the rest of the things you're seeing in, in D&D or whatever game you're trying to homebrew for. Yes, yeah, so it's making you're... me think of, uh, so uh, Bonnie does a lot of stained glass work. I do a little bit of it, too. Uh, which she does a lot more. And it's kind of like that or any other thing where it's a hobbyist type of thing, arts and art artisan type stuff. She's not up here staining glass, right? She's not creating the copper foil. She's not making solder, but she's taking all of these existing things and fabricating something new, something unique. And I think that's kind of what you were saying, Thorne. It's like you don't have to make the metal to make something out of metal. You know, the metal's hanging yes. out there. Repurpose it, right? You know, reduce, like, reuse, recycle. <laughs> literally, if you get a forge and you want to make a sword today, you will order the bar of iron. Yeah. You're not going to smelt it from, you can smell it from iron ore if you want to. Don't get You could go in the mountain, dig out some ore. Terry Pratchett, dwarves. Terry Pratchett literally did that for the, Sir Terry Pratchett literally did that, and that was the sword the queen knighted him with. So, yes, if you are hardcore and you want to put in the work, go for it. But most people, if they're going to most most blacksmiths, if they're going to forge a sword, order the type of steel they want and they forge it and quench it and shape it and all that stuff. There you go. But they start with the bar. You know, they yeah. start with the right kind of bar. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, No, it's a perfect, perfect, perfect. <laughs> and while you're flushing out the details of whatever you're home brewing in that respect, just obviously keep in mind what's going on with the rest of your party. So if you have a gunslinger and your ranger shooting arrows for D8, nah, your gun should be around there too. It should be 2D, you know, 3D10. That's the, the ranger's like, why am I firing a bow? You'd feel like a 5E ranger. It'd be terrible. It's just a great point. I totally agree. But it does hit one of the tension points in this whole discussion. On the other hand, earlier, we said you got to make it cool. You got to give them something extra. You got to give them the invulnerability. You got to give them the extra, the extra lightning fireball per day. And then on the other side, you got to make sure it doesn't show up the other party members. Mm. And that is a tension when you're making homebrew, especially if it's homebrew you're forcing on the player. You got to make it cool enough to make them want to do it, but you can't make it so cool, or you got to add some negatives in where the other party members are glad it didn't happen to them, or they don't feel bad that it didn't, that didn't happen to them. So how do you guys balance that? Well, okay, so if it's a forced transformation, all right, that's a little different. And obviously you're getting a negative. If you're bringing in a character and it's to be customized, then I would lean heavier on flavor and different options. Set mm. them apart from an existing character for things they can do, open some doors and avenues that aren't there, and that way that they are two separate entities which have comparable abilities but are still somehow different. If it's a force transformation or it's a reward transformation, 
like they took this great risk where they put all their chips and they came back with red on the roulette wheel. No, they deserve a look for something. But what I did want to follow up with, though, was, okay, so you have this new class you've introduced and it's got some cool stuff. If one of the other players wants to get into that class somehow or learn some tricks, do you let them? Well, you kind of have to. I mean, as long as there's not a story reason that clearly says you would absolutely not do this. Like, say you introduced the gunslinger and there was a warrior, a ranger or a rogue that said, hey, I like where this is going. I want to be a part of that. It's kind of like how Dave handled wrestling. Yeah. Like if Sir Scar said, I want to get into wrestling too. You know what? We would form a tag team. We'd kind of run yeah. with it, you know? Well, as I've said before with that too, I have no issue with people wanting to learn other things. I mean, uh, Beam, my cleric in Woodstock Wanderers, was thinking of possibly trying to join a paladin order. He wasn't sure what to do, blah, blah, blah. He got a long sword from the militant order of Bahamut and trains with it from the little bit he learned from one of the master at arms there to part of his daily routine is training with his longsword. So if we play long enough, does that turn into a longsword proficiency at some point? If I was running it, absolutely. But it's, it's a matter of like, for instance, like with the curse of Strahd, let's say you have Sir Scar wants to learn how to wrestle. No problem. That takes time. And you guys have been in Barovia for probably, what, maybe a month and a half tops? Two months on the far, far outside? That's not long enough to learn. Well, maybe that's actually could be Seven years on Earth. Exactly. Exactly. It's like we're in like a black hole in an interstellar. But, but yeah, so you have to put it within the, the, the real world of your game world. It has to make sense. You can't become a sword master in a weekend class. It just doesn't happen, you know? So people who want to learn those things, it does have to balance out. So you have to have the right campaign for that too, to allow for time, uh, downtime, side quests, things of that nature. Now, would Dawa really want him using a long sword? I don't know, but I mean, the world is, a, is tough now. So he has it, he's <laughs> training with it. You know, uh, you know, you want your gardeners to know how to use the sword, not necessarily to that they have to use them, but that, you know, that they can use them. Because right? I, I will tell you, my intention with that is that I had wanted to, I, I'd basically plan on letting you decide it with your class and proficiency decisions. Right, right. Uh, that was my, I wasn't going to add anything special. I mean, could I? I could. And I know Tony has a point to make, but I just wanted to throw something else out there. I actually don't agree on the real world timeline necessarily being your your timeline for this. Because I think you've got to keep your players in mind. And like in that game, in Curse of Strahd, we've heard a lot about how long Tony's been studying his manual of physical perfection for. <laughs> and it does get a little bit, yeah, it does get a little bit long. Like I think you got to pay off Christmas players. Gift? Yeah, yeah, right. I think you got to pay off for players. I don't think that's the, that's the spot where you want to be hardcore about real world time because you've got to pay off on things for players while they still care and want them. Otherwise, they get frustrated by it. So, like, I try to balance that out. Like, two or three sessions is fine. But if it's like, you know, if we've, if we've only covered a week and it's been, like, you know, eight sessions, maybe I just let them get away with it. <laughs> you know, right, just right. go ahead, go ahead. You're, you're done your book. You, you did some power reading last night. It still counted as rest. You're fine. Your, your book's done. You get your bonus. Because while we talk about in-game time, real-world time is really what determines that the players are having fun. That's true. That's a valid point. 
so with the uh, allowing people, uh, we're talking about a little bit of customization, a little bit of home brewing, where someone like Beams or learn a longsword. I've done that in the past. I've allowed, like in 1A and 2A, for example, you would never see most thieves with certain weapons or a cleric with certain weapons. Uh, and or a wizard, God forbid, he's using anything other than a staff, a sling, or a dagger. I mean, this genius couldn't possibly learn a song swordless as Gandalf. But the implications of that in the long term, it was it, where it's okay. So, for example, they get a weapon proficiency. Well, fantastic. Um, for the wizard or the uh, another class, their points aren't in strength. So, yes, Beam could use a longsword. He is not going to be adept with it as, say, Scar and I'm crossing campaigns, but also Beam's probably never going to get multiple attacks. And that's where the real brokenness. Now, if you gave Beam, you know, two attacks around with that, I'm like, wow, you are a freaking, you're a sword master, Beam. I agree with that. That would take years of study. Just giving him the skill, meh. I will be honest, just giving Beam longsword proficiency will not break anything in the game. <laughs> it wasn't something I was going to go out of my way to do. I was going to let you handle it. No, but it, it's but all, it won't, like I said, it really it's also been, it. it's been literally like a week. I mean, I, I, that's where I would say like that I, for me as a player and also running the game. So as we say, we always run the games that we, we would play in and vice versa. Um, I like a little of that slow burn because for me, that's where some of that organic real building of the character and you're really married to what's happening with it happens is through that time. But there is a balance to be found, as you said. It has been more than a week, actually, because there's been some travel you've done that's been a week. That's true, so, yeah. So you guys, you guys have been on the road. You've covered a lot of ground since then. You've been to one, well, one and a half, two, three. Now, you've been to like at least four locations since then. And all those locations have had multi-day travel time. I think at least one of them had a one-week yeah, travel time. Yeah, yeah. So, like, there has been – he's been practicing for probably about a month at this point. Um, yeah, it wouldn't break the game. I was, I was going to handle it that way, but maybe it's one of those things I can throw in just as a gift. You know, because Dave does three wise DMs with me. So, <laughs> you're solid. <laughs> Long story for DM. <laughs> Yeah. Of course, I'm never getting up into melee with anybody, but regardless. It has happened. You have had to melee before. I have had to. I don't like it. but. So, guys, we've been going on about this for a while. So let's get to some final thoughts on homebrew, how narrative drives homebrew, and how you balance it and make sure it's going to be fun to play with. So if you are going to do some homebrew surrounding characters, uh, changes within the game, uh, or you're going to try to change an existing character class, I would use the opportunity to see what doesn't exist but isn't going to bend anything too far out of bounds by using existing structures so you can see what other classes can do what other items can do along levels without blatantly copying them step by step or it won't have any flavor whatsoever as far as doing that narratively well if you're char- you have a character who's got a goal and they push for it and they do a good job for it well they deserve a payoff and sometimes that payoff may not be exactly what they want. It could be awesome. It may come with some negative effects. Sounds like an interesting story. Yeah, I mean, I would say, as we, I think all three of us said we did this some, uh, similar, was let the story create the need for homebrew. So necessity is the mother of invention, right? Don't necessarily come with saying, I just think something's cool, so let's shoehorn this in. 
let the story develop some of that. Now, you might come in with something like a cool idea for a class or a whole group of classes. Maybe it's a whole squad of this type of character that you want to do. That's cool. Um, I would go back and say with class stuff, think about reskinning and reflavoring and not necessarily rebuilding from whole cloth or, or making from whole cloth, that is. Because they all, as I said, go back to the, the parents of fighter, wizard, cleric, thief, you know, the gauntlet. Uh, video game <laughs> classes, you know? Uh, everything is kind of based off that, and then they start to break out from there. So look at that as to how you can start to adjust some things for a class. You don't necessarily have to create something completely brand new. I'm actually going to start my final thoughts by contradicting us. Yeah, Whoa. there's a reason. So we've talked Game a lot about man. how in Whoa. our homebrew, we mostly work off of the pieces that are in there. We've talked about why that's a good idea and, and why we use it for benchmarking and why we stick to that most of the time. If you have an inspiration, if you've got the passion to do it, if you if you are willing to put the work into getting it to work right and balance right, do it. If you have a class you want to make, do it. Because the truth is, while this is how we usually do it, you might make a new world with new classes that's like, uh, you know, uh, D&D 5e compatible. That's the coolest thing ever made. So don't let any of what we're saying stop you from following that inspiration. Mm -hmm. Follow your views. Having said that, you know, if you're a DM who's basically working through the narrative of your game and you're finding things you want to do and kind of inspirations you want to build out from there, these are some good building blocks for doing it. The building blocks are in the game. Put it together like Legos. You know, think of it like Legos. You just take the Legos apart, you take apart the spaceship, and you go make a tank. And the, that will let you pretty much realize any inspiration you have and do it in such a way that it's still going to be pretty well balanced and fit pretty well in the game. So that's, that's what I've always done. That's what we've talked about a lot. And, and we're just in saying that, you know, we don't want to discourage anyone who does have like some totally wild inspiration that needs to be made whole cloth. Cause that could be really cool too. Um, beyond that, I would just say really, you know, the real key to all this and doing it well is getting into your narrative, understanding your world and letting that drive you to the things that you want to homebrew. Because that's really the coolest stuff. And oftentimes, your homebrew stuff is what makes your world feel cooler. That's often the most memorable part of your game. Because as we've said in, in previous episodes before, too, nothing's really as cool as when you break the rules. So don't be afraid mm. to homebrew where it makes sense in your narrative. When you And, and you'll know because you'll feel that book. You'll feel the, man, okay, so what solves this? Well, it's not the Baylor in the book. It's this thing that I came up with out of my head that I'm going to put together. When you get that, follow it. It often makes the coolest stuff you're going to make. And it often is the stuff your player is going to enjoy the most. Art, Kang, notwithstanding. That is a DM. <laughs> that is an adversarial DMPC and kind of a different thing. That is the Aarakocra monk that has bedeviled the party and who they've literally said they don't want to see again, even though he's full of magic items for them. But... You know, that stuff, that homebrew stuff, really is the stuff that sets your game apart. So when you get to those points where the narrative calls for it and you kind of get the feeling, no, I want to solve this my way, not the book way, follow it, balance it the best you can, roll it out. Your players are probably going to love it. So that's very it. well said. That's very solid, well said. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Guys, thanks a lot. It's been a fun conversation. Absolutely. These are the best. We get into all the crazy stuff we've done. You know, I'm not saying it's the craziest stuff any DM's done. There's got DMs out there have done more crazy things, but this is the most fun. Making yeah. up the Larval Mage was some of the most fun I've had as a DM. Gadanathwa is one of the most fun things I have in Woodstock Wanderers. Like this, this is when it's fun. I mean, Dave, is the is as the wrestling match been fun to design? Uh, yeah. I just don't know. I'm waiting to see if my uh, loose.
my loose, loose uh, rule set that I sent out to you guys, I don't know. I'm waiting to see. Maybe I have a whole new RPG system. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. To be continued. I saw a great quote related to that. It said their English language has 1,300,000 words or something to that effect, and none of them could possibly sum up how badly I want to hit you with a chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to see how it we need to see how it works. I that's that's the subtitle on, the, on that on uh, this week's episode of Curse of Scrod. When little one slips me the chair. <laughs> the yeah, I mean magic isn't allowed in, and as long as it's not a silver chair, I I think that's completely okay. It's not I allowed in the ring, but you know, yeah. Phineas has a lot of charm effects. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like all kinds of stuff, and I just that's what I'm what I'm worried about most is because I don't even know. Like this is so loose. And I'm trying to keep it loose so that it can try to keep you guys on point. I don't know. We'll see. I'm just going to jump up on the stands like I'm Chaucer from A Knight's Tale and just start <laughs> busting eloquent until yeah. we get enough points that that, that, that that Hawk wins the match. That Hawk could just leg drop. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I, I'm interested to see I what occurs with this completely book material. Straight from the book. <laughs> Straight from the book. This is chapter 11. It's right in there. And listeners, thank you again for listening. We can't wait to see you next week on the next episode of Three Wise DMs. If you want to talk to us before then, as I said earlier, you can email us at threewisedms at gmail.com. You can talk to us through the What's Your Problem field on our website. Also, leave a comment on our articles. We'd love to hear what you think of them. And you can talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a five-star review in your podcast platform of choice. Share it with your friends. Uh, tell them what you think you like about it. And yeah, just do whatever you can to, 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 to help spread the word. We've been growing by leaps and bounds. That's because of you, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time on Three Wise DMs. Thank you.